0: just celebrating the season, the the resurrection of Jesus, through this entire season. And I know when Ben um, contacted those of us in the College of Preachers and said we'd be preaching out of the book of Acts, he said that this is a book that talks about the early church working out what it meant to live in the new creation reality inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that's such a great description of, you know, what all of Eastertide is about. So as we... uh, learn with the church with the early church as part of the church what it means to enter into that new creation reality inaugurated by the resurrection i say to you the lord be with you you. thank you Um, so when michael my son michael was about a year and a half um, i became friends new friends with someone and her son was about a month older than michael So it was very easy for us to begin to hang out because we had the same sort of rhythms and the same schedule, they napped at the same time, and developmentally they were on a similar page, so it was easy to find activities we could both do. It was kind of a practical reason that we started to hang out, but of course as we hung out more we started to recognize that we actually did share quite a bit in common and had a lot of the same interests, and also we tended to... um, probably complain about the same sorts of political criticisms we had, and um, had a lot of interest in the same social issues. But the longer that we became friends, I started to realize that she was becoming a lot more comfortable sharing all of the nuances of everything she believed. And I started to feel myself becoming less and less comfortable sharing the nuances. I felt this growing divide between us, that no matter how much we had in common and how much we shared, there was this this tiny um, space where we didn't agree. And I felt that tension there. And then one day when we got together, she said to me, I'm getting so tired of all the ridiculous things that people post on Facebook. And I'm at a point in my life where I just think, um, I'm just not going to I'm just not gonna put up with it anymore. I don't need to be friends with these people. And I just don't think that um, people who are posting things in support of Donald Trump and making comments that are racist and homophobic, I don't need to be friends with them anymore. And she said this because she was, had a friend and she had read this comment that really upset her. And she said, I'm done. I have unfriended them, not even gonna have anything to do with them anymore. And I remember in that moment that I had this sense of like, oh, what if she interprets like something that I say in one of those categories? Like what's gonna happen with our relationship? And I think that we very much live in this time and space today in our world where we have all of these boundaries around us and we know what those boundaries are and we know what those dividing walls are. And we kind of sit in two places. Either we're on the side where, we're part of, we, you know, we help form these tribes and create these tribes based on our values and interests. And then we have the specific language and these expectations within those tribes. And when someone violates those things, we can become angry or offended or um, and maybe even rightly so. And we create, create a dividing wall and either we start to avoid that person or we push them away or we don't participate in that group anymore um, or we just straight call them out and cut them off. And on the other side of that, because we're aware of these boundaries, we're kind of like maybe in more of my position that I was in with my friend, where we're wondering what's going to happen if I cross that boundary. I have to be very careful about what I say and what I do to make sure that boundary doesn't get crossed. And I maintain this relationship because we realize that there's a lot at stake. We could lose that friendship. We could lose that job promotion at work or our job. We could create wedges in our families that seem hard to overcome. Into this context that we live in today, we proclaim the good news. In Jesus' kingdom, every form of human tribalism is done away with, and every dividing wall is broken down. All people are invited to be made holy by Jesus, receive his good gifts, and participate in welcoming one another into new life together. Um, I think it would be hard to overemphasize how radical our reading is today from the book of Acts. Um, this is a story that's a continuation of uh, what began in Acts chapter 10 of Gentiles being brought into the Jewish fellowship fellowship of believers who follow Jesus. Very radical um, uh, situation. And when we pick up in Acts chapter 11, we read in verse 1 that the Jews in Jerusalem had heard that the Gentiles received the word of God. And I think for me, my initial reaction is like thinking about the, the parable of the lost coin or the prodigal son. It's like, ooh, there should be rejoicing over this. Like the Gentiles receive the word of God. But then when we look in verse two, we see Peter goes up to Jerusalem and the circumcised believers criticize him. That's their reaction. The Gentiles receive the word of God. The Jewish believers criticize him and they say, Peter, you ate with, uncir- you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. And for a minute, it's easy to say, like, whoa, are they totally focusing on the entirely wrong thing? So I recently read a book um, called Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews by Paula Fredrickson. And she is a historian and a professor at Boston University, and she says that, she often poses the question to her students, what is the single biggest difference between the religious sensibility of people in the modern West and our cultural ancestors of 20 centuries ago? And invariably, her students will say things like monotheism or the scientific worldview and those types of things. And she says that she doesn't, you know, these are all uh, things that fall into the realm of ideas, but she doesn't think the biggest difference is in the realm of ideas, but in the realm of practice. She says, worship in antiquity involved blood sacrifices, and universally the worship of a deity, virtually any deity, involved the slaughter of animals and the ritual redistribution of their bodies. And since proximity to the god's altar meant, in some sense, proximity to holiness as well, all ancient people who offered at traditional altars underwent rites of purification. I share this with you because it gives us some context for understanding that Peter and the circumcised believers in his day um, had this value and purity and holiness that I think is hard for us to relate to sometimes because we do have this distance. It's not a value that we have necessarily, which means that it also requires a lot of imagination for us to realize what was at stake for Peter and the circumcised believers when they bring up this question about Peter eating with uh, uncircumcised men. And so part of building that imagination, I want to um, remind us of the food laws that Peter's referring to in Leviticus 11. i want to share a passage out of that. Because Leviticus 11 is a part of the law where God gives to the Jews um, the food laws, or, you know, the laws about which kind of animals are clean for them to eat and unclean for them to eat. And just as a slight word of explanation, clean and unclean doesn't have anything to do with their physical body. It's, it is a state of purity. It's a state of holiness um, in approaching an altar and approaching a holy God um, that is expected to be maintained, Uh, that that in the Old Testament is part of the creation reality. So again, we don't have that concern, so it's going to take a little imagination for us to make that connection. But in Leviticus 11, it begins, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, whatever that is, I could have probably looked it up, but I didn't. So whatever this hyrax is, if anyone knows, (laughs) uh, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. And I'm telling you, this is like 40 verses of sounding like this. Like, this is an animal. This is clean for you or this is unclean for you. Almost every other verse is, this is unclean for you, this is taboo for you. Almost 40 verses. It's kind of a rhythm that's within that. But I think the part that helps us to relate to that, since we don't practice this, is the reason for the laws, which comes at the end of this chapter, where God says to the people of Israel, "For I, this is the reason that these laws are given. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls upon the earth, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The people of Israel had a proximity to holiness. God promised, I will be with you. I will be with you in the desert, in the cloud, and in the fire. I will be with you in the tabernacle. I will be with you in the holy of holies in the temple. So the people of Israel constantly lived in the proximity to the holy, and therefore they had to be a holy people. But also they served to mediate God's presence and to mediate God's holiness into the world. Through them, blessing comes to the entire world, to all people. And they also serve as a priestly role within that because they're mediating God's presence and God's goodness and God's holiness. They're representing the goodness in creation. When you read Leviticus 11 and when you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there are some parallels that happen with the types of animals that um, are in both of those texts those kinds of things. So as they're living out these concrete details of their lives, um, they they are representing that holiness in the world and they have a constant reminder of their identity as the people of God, as their identity as people who mediate that, who are in proximity to the holy. These reminders, every time they eat food, every time they get dressed, every time they farm, every time they do all of these very detailed things in, in the context of their lives, they have a reminder of who they are, what faithfulness to God means, that they're called into that faithful living. So this um, is a huge part of the concern for Peter and the concern for the circumcised believers, because one of the things, the big things that's at stake is their identity and the question of how if they're living faithfully with God. Huge questions. And another part of that is the issue of table fellowship, because it's not even just the question of like, are we being pure? What's Cornelius serving in his house? Is it gonna be something that's gonna make me like ritually unclean, that I'm not gonna be like being faithful to the covenant? But also, Peter, a Jew, is going into the home of a Gentile centurion and eating. Um, I know for me, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about if I'm sharing a meal with someone, what does that say about me? And what does that say about them? It's usually like we're involved in these things together. Eating's like something we can do to occupy our time. Like I'm going to Michael's school thing. And like that takes up an hour when the kids have to eat. Like that makes the time go really well. I'm not thinking like what am I, what does I say about our relationship? But in the time of Peter, um, who you had table fellowship with said a lot about who you are identifying with. It said a lot about um, your status in in society and in culture. And I think a good analogy out of our culture is like entering into the lunchroom of a middle school or a high school. There's so much to be said about like who's sitting at which table, about your identity and who you're identifying with and who's accepting you. So there's a lot of that identity aspect in, in Peter having table fellowship with Cornelius. But another thing that I think gives us um, a good sense of that is um, other traditions in the world. So my husband Mike and I really enjoy Ethiopian food, and uh, when you go to like have a traditional Ethiopian meal, there's like a basket, kind of a table, and everyone sits around it. And there's a plate with injera bread, which is like a fermented sponge bread, like a flatbread, and then all of whatever dishes you're eating are on this flatbread. So like the meat you're eating, the vegetables or whatever. And everyone who is sharing in this meal will take from the flatbread and you pinch the food that you're eating and you eat it and everyone shares from the same plate, the same table. So there's this proverb in um, Ethiopian tradition that says, those who eat from the same plate will not betray each other. So for Peter and um, the other believers and even a lot of cultures around the world, Sharing the same table says a lot about your commitment to one another. That's a huge part of also what's at stake. Um, So Peter has this question of purity and all of the social implications. And just like Jesus, um, who was criticized because he ate with tax collectors and sinners, Peter too faces this criticism. You went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them. But into this situation, Um, God gives Peter this vision addressing this, right, where he's shown all of these animals that are unclean in the the laws of Leviticus 11, and he tells Peter, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And so Peter, understandably, in the vision, says, uh, in Greek, it's emphatic, heck no, I have never, ever eaten an unclean food. In other words, like, God, I've always done what you've asked with regard to this. I've always been pure. I've always been faithful to you. I will not do this thing. But God extends, in this, in this circumstance, he extends to Peter this invitation to see how is he work, how he's at work. He says to Peter three times, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. He doesn't say like, oh, well, Peter, don't worry. Holiness doesn't matter anymore. We're not gonna, not gonna really deal with it. It's fine. We're just gonna do it with the laws and it's fine. He's, no, he says, I'm at work here and I'm doing the good work that's represented in the laws because I am making clean. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. So in response, as Peter receives this invitation from God, he, tells, uh, he, goes, he goes to Cornelius' house. And as he's explaining this to the circumcised believers, he says, um, the Spirit told me not to have hesitation about going with them. And he goes. And then when he's there, the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, um, just as he did in Acts 2, with the Jewish believers. And that's what, what Peter explains. Well, the Spirit came upon them, just like he did us at the beginning. Who was I to um, to question what God was doing? Or I, I want to give the exact wording, but I won't have this open. But pretty much, you know, who was I to say, like, God, you're, this is what you're doing. Don't do it, or whatever, you know. So he Peter receives this invitation to see how God's at working, and then to be part of it. And and I think it's encouraging that the other believers also, when they heard it, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, even to, to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They too receive that invitation from God to see, how is he at work and discern together, how can we be part of what God is doing? Today we receive the good news. In Jesus' kingdom, every form of human tribalism is done away with, and every dividing wall is broken down. All people are invited to be made holy by Jesus, receive his good gifts, and participate in welcoming one another into new life together. We live in a world of boundaries and tribes and dividing walls. And we live in a world where we feel like we can or can't relate to people who voted for Donald Trump. We don't, un- we don't even know how to associate with people who understand race and sexual and gender issues so differently than we do. We don't wanna engage with that person because they're too liberal or too conservative. We feel offended or we feel uncomfortable or angry when we see that someone's political or social or theological views are creating injustice in the world. And we face legitimate concerns and objections in these things, just like Peter and the the circumcised believers face a real legitimate concern and question. So what we can tend to do is find the boundary and put up the dividing wall. We mark a boundary and put up a dividing wall when we feel like Someone's failing us again and again. We mark a boundary and put up a dividing wall when we can't understand why that person just can't get their stuff together and be a responsible adult. We mark a boundary and put up a dividing wall when we get annoyed every time that person's in the room because they always need the spotlight, they're always taking the credit, and spend our entire interaction together being self-absorbed. We mark a boundary and we put up a dividing wall when that family parents their kids really differently than we do and we worry about how that's going to affect our kids too when they're together. We mark a boundary and we put up a dividing wall when we've tried to have a conversation with someone and it dead ends every time and it's just super uncomfortable and we don't know where to go from there. So we click on friends. We avoid that person or we minimize the amount of interaction we have to have with them. Or we just straight let them know, you're out. And it's in these places that we receive that good news today. That in the new creation reality, inaugurated by Jesus, every form of human tribalism is done away with. Every dividing wall is broken down. We are all invited to be made holy by Jesus, to receive his good gifts, and participate in welcoming one another into that new life together. So I know for me, this good news is like always in my face constantly uh, because, I, I mean, my DNA group's probably so tired of hearing me talk about community and belonging all the time. <laughs> but I definitely have like this ultra radar of, of just being aware of where those differences lie and how I can navigate that. And so one of the things I tend to do is just be like, okay, we're going to meet in the middle. We just all, like, we're not going to talk about those issues that make us uncomfortable. We're going to only focus on the things that we share. Um, But I've been realizing this week as I've been um, just meditating on this, that that's kind of like creating a little boundary also, but just kind of in a different space. And it still uh, ultimately means that the people who fall outside of that who make me uncomfortable, I am, um, like, just kind of (laughs) stepping away a little bit, pulling back. And even when I was talking with Matt about the wording for the story that I opened with today, I kind of um, was just asking him about how to use some of the wording. And he said, yeah, that's, you know, it sounds good to do it this way. And I told him when I decided that I would actually specifically say the words Trump, racism, and homophobic, my anxiety level went up like three notches. <laughs> so, um As I've been meditating on this, I've been thinking about last summer in the Table 101 class where we talked about um, just kind of where we are as a community, you know, things that we believe or like orientations we have and postures we have. And Ben and Matt shared with us um, this Anglican, and I don't know if we can get the compass rose on the screen. Okay, good. Um, This Anglican image called the compass rose. And at some point, Ben said, people put these words around. The, the symbol itself is the compass rose. And then um, people put these, someone put these words around it. And you can see that they're kind of binary ideas, right? So the ones that are across from each other are kind of like the binary or counterpoints of ways that impulses that people have within the church. And in. Yes. So at the very top, uh, yeah, I was thinking it's kind of like, it says orthodox at the north. If you go to the north, orthodox. And then to the south, the, the binary for that is charismatic. And then kind of moving like to the, what, three, two o'clock, one o'clock, whatever. Um, Then it's contemplative and activist. And then the East is Catholic and evangelical. And then next is liberal and conservative. And so they shared that on the one hand, it's like really encouraging within the Anglican church because um, it's a very big tent. And so all of these impulses are represented within the Anglican church. And by extension, like all of these impulses are represented here at the table and we want to create space for that. Um, and I remember that as, as they were um, explaining this to us, that Ben said, but the, it's not like the goal is just to meet in the middle. And that always stuck with me, because that is definitely my tendency of like, OK, it's like we'll be in the safe place if we all just like give a little, take a little, and like we just end up in the middle somewhere. But he said, you know, I feel that tension. I, I'm, I, I have preferences on these things. But I'm part of a community. So as we talk about these things and how we're discerning how God's at work, um, we discern that together. We discern where we need to um, love one another better or how we need to act um, as we're together as a community. And it was kind of freeing for me too to realize that like this, it's one thing to be like, we're just going to meet in the middle between these two things, but somehow we lose something of who we are as individuals and as people and as all parts and gifts in the body of Christ because we're not, none of us are fully us then, right? We're not actually loving the fully other. We're just loving like parts of each other that we are okay with. But Christ gives us this vision of how do we love the fully other? How do we break down the dividing wall and the barrier between Jew and Greek, between uh, male and female, between slave and free, for us, between orthodox and charismatic, contemplative and activist, conservative and liberal, Catholic and evangelical? How do we learn to actually love one another and not just like, kind of put up with the parts of each other that we already agree with? And it's hard to have an imagination for that. I mean, the church has historically been extremely bad at this, even though (laughs) Christ as our, you know, example as our, as everything that we are, as who we are orienting to be, um, was the most radical at doing this. So there, just as we close out, I want to share one last story that kind of gave me a sense of, like, beginning to have an imagination for what this kind of looks like. Um, I did not grow up in a liturgical tradition. And so as I started to learn about liturgical practices and liturgy a few years ago, I came across this story that <laughs> definitely was like putting me into the deep end because I was like, I love this. <laughs> but I had read about this gentleman who shared that he was part of a smaller congregation. And once, well, every, every week they would pass the peace just like we do here at the table. But once a year, the church would take like an entire service and they would form a circle around the room and every single person in the church would pass the peace to every single other person in the church. And they would take time to really ask themselves, is there a root of bitterness that has come up? Is there a dividing wall that's come up between us over the course of this year? Is there something that I'm like harboring or that um, you've offended me about that, I, that we need to forgive each other, that we need to be reconciled? Every single person. And they would like take as long as they needed to for reconciliation to happen between them. And I had been part of a churches that passed the peace, and it was definitely just like the greeting time, you know, from like non-liturgical churches. But when I read this, I remember that it became so much more deliberate deliberate when I spent time even in that short moment of passing the peace because we are declaring to one another every week when we pass the peace. We're declaring that peace of Christ to one another. We're declaring our commitment that we're going to be reconciled together. And that even if we have these extreme differences that we don't know how to, like, hurdle, that Christ can, can bring us into and show us and reveal to us how he's at work in our lives and reconcile us together. And I just kept thinking all week, by God, if that can't be done here in the church, where in the world can it be done? Where? But we need God to do that work in us, and we need to recognize how God is doing that work in each other and to be committed enough to do that. So our, um, our response today is going to be two parts. I, I kind of wanted to, like, text Ben and Matt and be like, hey, what about, like, a passing the peace service? <laughs> but Ben I was like, oh, maybe. I don't know if we're ready for that yet. But we have small children. <laughs> We've got small children to think about. Uh, <laughs> but so part of our response is during our time today when we're passing the peace, let's have an imagination for it not being a greeting time for it being, but it, it being about us speaking that good news of peace over one another. And really, like, being honest with ourselves of, like, hey, Spencer, you really annoy me, but we can— <laughs> You're the only one who can take it, Spencer, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but, like, we are going to speak peace over each other, and we're going to learn to love each other the way that Christ loves us and has shown that love to us and broken down those dividing walls. And then the second part of our response is going to be more of our traditional response, because I did feel like it's important for us to take that space to ask ourselves, like, where in our lives is this um, dynamic at play? So as we normally do, we're going to just have time to um, speak out this prayer that is in the worship booklets. Um, anyone who wants to participate, you're welcome to participate, um, or even if you're just silently do it in your seat, you No. Know, um, just taking time to discern from God, where are you at work? How do you want us to see it? How do you want us to be part of it? And I will begin. um, Holy God, thank you for your faithful commitment and abundant mercy to your whole creation and all people. Give me eyes to see how you are at work in my family and discern how I can be a welcoming presence. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Thank you that you have done the good work to break down dividing walls, barriers, and that you're doing that work in us. I pray that you'll give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand, and meet us in the very, very difficult places, and the real cost of learning to love one another. In Jesus' name we pray.